I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first Government versus the Robots of 2019. This week we're bringing you an episode which was recorded at the Politics Summit late last year in West London. As ever, when we're out on the road, there might be a bit of background noise, but we will be bringing you a take on tech regulation and the prospects for Britain as an innovation nation from the only engineer in Parliament and Shadow Minister for Science and Innovation, Chi Onwura. We also talked to author Carl Miller about who he considers to be the new aristocrats of the digital age, the rise of the clickbait industry in Eastern Europe, and why we should all worry about crime in the cyber age, as power seeps away from those who used to possess it. Last, but absolutely, definitely not least, we also talked to self-confessed techie Hira Hussein, whose tech platform chain not only employs the internet's first catbot, but much more importantly is using the potential of technology to help women all over the world escape from abusive relationships. First though, I sat down with the organiser of the Politics Summit to find out what it's all about. So my name is Alvin Carpio. I um, founded uh, and currently a chief exec of the Fourth Group, uh, which is a public advocacy group advocating on behalf of the public on uh, issues related to technology. And what sort of work or projects do the Fourth Group do? Yeah, so um, we uh, recently did a big kind of global inquiry to find out what it is um, citizens are most concerned about um, when it comes to the biggest problems caused by tech, Um, but particularly what can we actually practically do to respond. Uh, We also kind of looked at questions of uh, rights and responsibilities, and I think the whole purpose of the inquiry was to figure out what we as a a group of uh, people around the world um, actually want to take action on. So we are all about creating impact and change, but for us, the first step was to actually figure out what was going on. Um, So now that we've finished the inquiry and we've launched a report, Our Tech Revolution, uh, we are now going to launch what we've called United Citizens, which is a membership organization democratically run, where the members themselves vote for the representatives, uh, as well as vote on the campaigns we act on. So to put it simply, uh, we advocate on behalf of the public in terms of their interests, uh, all around issues of technology. And the report, Our Tech Revolution, does it identify digital sins and digital saints? <laughs> yeah, sort of, um, we've been making a lot of jokes about how sinful are you and how virtuous are you. Um, I mean, one of the key findings in terms of the conversations was when people responded to the question of kind of what are the biggest problems, they often talked about their personal relationship to technology and, and hardware and phones and TVs and laptops, uh, but also how that kind of 
plays out in the you know in the ordinary world when you're around a dinner table and people are stuck on the screens or you're on holiday or at a gig and filming something else and basically what we then kind of uncovered was the sense of sort of if you will uh, bad behavior going on um, which um, you know we've referred to as the six sins of the digital age um, including narcissism disconnection hate and so forth and then we married that with um, six virtues which effectively the opposite of that um, temperance uh, community humanity uh, and all of that um, is available to be seen on um, we are united citizens.org so we've got a report there but yeah it was just really interesting to kind of see the human aspect and hopefully it's something that people can have conversations about um, and kind of test how if you will sinful or virtuous they are when it comes to digital technologies and there's been plenty of virtuous conversation here at the politics summit so far this morning can you tell us a bit about the kind of founding principles of the politics summit so i guess the vision for politics summit is to gather people to discuss the most pressing political issues of our time now two um, interesting kind of themes weren't mentioned, Brexit and Trump and I think it's actually been quite refreshing because so much of the agenda politically and socially has been eaten up by those two very important uh, issues, however this is an opportunity to talk about something which is happening on a global scale uh, and something which isn't necessarily being talked about but is impacting us on a daily basis. So as I say um, hopefully we gather people from politics, technology, business civil uh, society academia, the media uh, campaigning groups to come together, put the hats aside, put the political affiliations aside and really discuss the issues. Um, for us, the vision is to do what Web Summit did for tech, but we do that for politics, where you don't need to be a member of a political party or focus on a national issue. It's about thinking about how we come together as um, a global community to address these political problems. And people should get a flavour of the work of the fourth group and uh, the content of the Politics Summit through this episode of Government versus the Robots. But if people want to get further involved, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, well, uh, best thing is always just to say hi. Um, you know, you can email us at um, join at fourth.group. But you can also check out our website, um, www.fourth.group. I think for us, um, we really want to make sure that we're building a community, a global one. So digital channels allow for that to happen. But also face-to-face meetings and coming to our events is a big thing. I think our big kind of um, mission for the next month is to recruit a thousand members to United Citizens. So we're looking for the first founding members of United Citizens to help raise £40,000 to hire a campaigner, hire a community organiser, uh, and get on with addressing the problems raised in, in the inquiry. So if you really want to get involved, sign up as a member and then co- come and join us to take action. Alvin, thanks very much. Thanks so much. Cheers. So now you know where we are and what it's all about, let's hear from the keynote speaker, Chi Onwara. I'm the MP for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central and I'm the Shadow Minister for Industrial Strategy, Science and Innovation. And we're here at the Politics Summit. You've just given a keynote speech. Can you tell us what your message to the summit was? Well, my message was actually very the same message I gave at the uh, Web Summit in Lisbon uh, last week, which was that tech needs to engage more with citizens and consumers, that people need to be at the heart of technology, that it's technology for people, not people for technology. And right now, that is not what's happening, and tech needs to change. And consumers and citizens, citizens need to be driving that movement. 
And you've got a background working in technology and large projects, is that right? Well, in fact, I've got a ba- so I'm a I'm still a chartered engineer, and um, I spent 20 years as an engineer, um, actually 23, working in all kinds of projects. I worked for big companies developing uh, telecoms equipment boxes. I worked for smaller companies rolling out uh, networks. I worked for medium-sized companies. I I rolled out the first GSM network in Nigeria. I did product management. I did project management. I did, in my final role, was as head of technology for Ofcom, the communications regulator. So that was really looking at the economics, the technology, and the, the legals of the sort of communication sector. Some of that technology is obviously really transformative, but it, most people would assume that most members of parliament probably aren't as up to speed with the transformative potential of technology. Is that a fair critique of parliament? Um, well, it's certainly the case kind of, um, that there are um, there are not many engineers in Parliament and even fewer who have actually worked as engineers and so have that, or scientists, and have that familiarity with technology. Uh, you know, there's a lot, many, many more uh, lawyers and, um, and, um, and others. So I think, I think it's true to say and it's, it's, that the tech, that the intimate technology of Parliament is not representative of the country as a whole, and I do think that's an issue. But it certainly shouldn't be the case that everyone in Parliament should have to be a chartered engineer, you know, simply because tech is so important in today's world. But so there's a real there's a real sort of onus on companies and organisations to explain tech in a way that uh, politicians can can engage with. But there is also an onus on politicians, I think, to be better informed about technology. And as a podcast, we focus on how technology will influence politics in the future. Is that something that you think or that you hear your constituents talking about? Are they worried about job losses through automation? Do they care about fake news? What, what if at all, um, comes up on the doorstep when it comes to tech and politics? Well, what I think is really sad, and speaking as someone who went into technology, obviously, and into engineering, because I thought that engineering and technology is transformative in a progressive way, is the extent to which my constituents now uh, distrust, uh, mistrust uh, technology. I think um, this government and the the previous coalition's government um, insistence that all benefits have to be claimed online without giving people either the access to the you know, connectivity or the skills to do that, which means that pe- I have constituents who are sanctioned because they can't sign on and they end up in food banks. I mean, obviously, people don't look at technology positively when that's what's preventing them from getting uh, their very basic income. And then you have all you know the stories about uh, tech surveillance and uh, Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica. So um, one of my, you know, one of my challenges uh, to the tech sector is that my constituents, you know, tech. It used to be finance that people distrusted the banks, and I would say that increasingly it's tech that people distrust, and that is, I think, very dangerous for you know for people, but and for our economy. And that's something that we need to work together to change. And you don't get trust without deserving trust, and that is what the tech sector needs to do. And some of what you've outlined there is often referred to as a tech lash for people <laughs> kind of finally getting to grips yeah. with what Cambridge Analytica and others have been yeah. up to. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. assume the obvious reaction to that is more regulation. Do you think we need more regulation of technology companies? I think um, we need better regulation. I mean, having, you know, having worked for a regulator, 
you know, what I say is that, you know, the opposite of regulation is not no regulation. It is bad regulation. So, I mean, the regulation actually, you know, applies to, and we're increasingly seeing this, if you like, with, like, for example, with Uber as a taxi firm, not something, a tech firm, that regulation of the old world applies in a new world. And I think that's increasingly being recognized. But the problem is it's not, it's not designed for the new world and it's very ad hoc. We need a, a, like a debate, a discussion to develop a, a 21st century regulatory framework which makes tech, you know, which kind of puts the citizen back at the heart of tech and makes it sort of, you know, gives the sort of the safety thing, which is every government's duty, but also supports the you know, innovation and the progressive and the, um, you know, access to technology for everyone. That's what we talk about an innovation nation in, in the Labour Party. So, you know, I think we need we need a we need a coherent regulatory framework. We have we have actually got lots of regulation, but it's incoherent, it's ad hoc, it's old world, and it is not fit for purpose. Are you a fan of the GDPR regulation, um, which was obviously a European Union piece of regulation? And without wanting to hijack this conversation with Brexit as well, it strikes me there's probably opportunities for Britain to do things for itself around regulation. Do you think that there's good examples of recent regulation or are there bad examples of regulation that should be taken out of the way? Um, GDPR, GDPR, you know, GDPR was seven years in the making. That is what I, and so it is sort of, it's a, it's a step forward. It has its failings, but it's certainly a step forward. But it, it, it is almost like it was in, in some ways out of date the moment it came into force because it took so long. What was fantastic about being part of the European Union was that our voice counted. You know, our voice really counted because the UK was a leader in regulation and our voice counted with Google and Facebook because that was a big, a bloody big market you know now as the UK outside of the European Union I think there obviously there are opportunities for us to be uh, innovative and to develop a coherent you know regulatory framework would lead to the world but we will need to work we will need to maintain strong close working relationships with the European Union if that is actually to mean something because I will tell you that um, Google will not change their algorithms for a market of 70 million, when well, they may do, they will do for a market of 300 million. So that is something that we need to bear in mind. But I do think it's important that we can, uh, we always, we don't, I hate these people who say, oh, it's all international, we can't do anything. We can do a lot, because it, it, companies may be international, but actually money remains, you know, if you follow the money, it ends up with people and countries. And you just mentioned uh, an innovation nation. Can you tell me a bit more about what hopefully an innovation nation in the UK would look like? As the Shadow Minister for Industrial Strategy, that's sort of one of my big... Is it, we, we, we base our industrial strategy around missions, you know, which sort of bring together the whole nation, unify the whole nation to achieve really important, you know, you know, you know visions and the, uh, with uh, challenges. And what the innovation nation is about creating a whole nation where innovation is part of our culture. So I am a uh, socialist a Democrat and an engineer. I don't think that innovation should be something that's done in sort of, you know, places over there, whether it's businesses or universities. Everyone can contribute to innovation. Everyone should feel that uh, technology and innovation is for them. And so in practical purposes, what does that mean? That means that we're going to increase the investment in R&D as a proportion of our GDP, so in research and development, to 3%, you know, which is 
significantly, you know, half again more than what we're doing at the moment. It means that we're going to create the highest number of high-skilled jobs in the um, in the OECD because high-skilled jobs mean high productivity, mean a prosperous nation. But it also means that we'll have a, a national education service where the lifelong learning will be free at the point of consumption, as it were, from the cradle to the grave, so that people can train and you know get the skills for these great new jobs. So it's really it's you know it does what it says on a tin if you like it make it democratizes innovation and brings the benefits of a high skill high wage high productivity high innovation economy to everyone and last but not least nobody knows when the next election will be um, <laughs> but what might we be able to expect from a an elected labor government in its first 100 days on issues around technology I think what we what we're um, you know as part of our innovation nation mission and but also as part of our um, clean uh, and climate control missions is around you know we've said that we'll immediately increase investment in science and technology we've also said that we will be you know we'll be for example creating building one million new homes in five years now what that means is that from day one we'll be looking at more innovative methods of, of building and also more innovative methods of saving energy you know investing in things such as uh, carbon capture and storage um, and we've said also just another example and there's so much to talk about but we'll create a, a retail catapult you know again innovation you know this government likes to talk about all the sexy areas you know artificial intelligence you know um, we retail has the heart more people on board in retail than in any other sector and they need the benefits of innovation increased productivity and at the service of that sector to to will make a huge difference so that's just some of the things thanks very much for talking to me okay if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com not for people with severe allergic reactions allergies to lidocaine or the proteins used in juvederm common side effects include injection site redness swelling pain tenderness firmness lumps bumps bruising discoloration or itching there's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities blindness stroke temporary scabs or scarring talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, before we entertain too much risk of getting bogged down in party politics and Brexit, I decided to talk to author Carl Miller about some of the big themes that run through his new book, Death of the Gods, which is all about what he calls the new global power grab. Hi, I'm Carl Miller. I'm the research director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, and I'm the author of a new book, The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. And you've been taking part in a, in a panel here at the Politics Summit. Can you tell us what was being discussed on the panel and what you found particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the panel was all about data and power and ownership, and I think essentially was dealing with this basic problem that consumers feel like they have very, very little power in the kind of data age. We don't know what data is collected about us, we don't know how it's used, um, and we don't know how we can kind of garner more bargaining power vis-a-vis the tech giants who seem to be becoming enormously kind of enwealthied um, on the base of the data we actually create. And regular government versus robots listeners might recognise the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media as somewhere that uh, Jamie Bartlett, who's appeared on the show a couple of times, works. You cover some similar areas, but I would suggest that your writing seems to cover a bit more of the very dark side of the internet. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think Jamie has his own fair share of very dark places on the dark net that he's went to as well. But you're right. I mean, I'm a close colleague of Jamie. We set up CASM uh, at Demos, the digital research unit together. Um, And I think kind of in many ways, we have a shared interest really in trying to kind of push ourselves out to the kind of weirdest, sometimes least familiar and most troubling parts of digital life in order to understand what on earth is going on there. And especially when what is going on there actually really matters for all the rest of us. And why does it really matter for all the rest of us? Well, the idea that I've been spending the last year or so of my time actually trying to track its power. Um, power, the ability to reach into each of our lives and to shape what those lives are like and to change the choices that we have and those that we make. Um, and that's led me, of course, to some very troubling areas indeed. I went on a cybercrime raid with the police. I, against my better knowledge became, or, 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 or even judgment, became uh, somewhat involved in struggle for control of an online assassination market, kind of stared into secret algorithms and made bots and interviewed everyone from cyber criminals through to hikikomori in south korea that never leave their rooms um but all of that really going out to those different new kinds of front lines was to try and show how power shifting for all of us um whether it's kind of collecting or dispersing and whether power itself actually is changing because really although power is obviously in its abstract form invisible um, it manifests itself in a million different forms which we feel every day, um, all the way from kind of coercive and and uh, and kind of uh, more brutal and abusive forms of power through to kind of e- economic inducements through to that kind of more subtle, uh, more intangible kinds of power which, uh, which kind of change our opinions and the information that we see and, and kind of begin to shift the behaviour which we have as well. And how do you conceive of the form or shape of power? Um... When I set out, that was pretty much the question which Manetta told me. He, he said, look, are we heading into a world where there's all these potent forms of control, where effectively power or the shape of power seems to be all drawn inwards towards a central point? Or are we stepping into a world where power seems to be dispersing in a million different directions all at once? And in fact, that's actually giving us all these new forms of liberation and opportunity. Um, and... I kind of realised with like growing alarm, chapter on chapter, as I was working through the book, as I was going to all these places, that um, both I saw both things happening actually in equal measure. Um, 
it was very hard to kind of put power into a single shape or a single container. It both seemed to be forming new potent forms of control and also to be flying out in a million different directions at exactly the same time. And actually, that was the answer. I realised that really was at the heart of what I see to be the nature of the digital revolution is, is, is essentially it, as an age which is beset by both liberation and control in equal measure. And that led me really to think it's not the shape of power really which is what is which is shifting so much as the nature of power what power really is now we've always tried to control power we've always tried to um, civilize it in many ways as an organized society um, we've tried to cage it I like to see it and that the bars of those cages um, are everything from the law to public scrutiny to professional standards um, to norms moral codes conventions and everything else both in its liberatory and in its kind of controlling forms, power is breaking out of those cages um, and becoming wilder, far wilder, I think, than it was in the past. Does that mean we need to create new cages or is it an exciting thing that power is now uncaged? I think it's allowing the kind of more perfect expression of, of human qualities, which we've always had, right? So we've always um, tried to be selfless and, and, and generous to one another. And actually we have the tremendous capacity to be cruel and, and self-serving too. Um, for me, I think we desperately do need to recage power um, because uh, the whole point of having rules, the whole point of having cages is to essentially try and limit the most abusive ways in which power can be used. I might think that you should be a vegan, but I can't hold a gun to your head and make you one. And th- you know th- that's, exa- that's exactly right because there should only be certain ways in which our ability to reach into each other's lives uh, should should be used in any way, or should should be considered legitimate. So I think really like the whole of our, I mean it sounds sweeping, but the whole of our kind of moral and organisational architecture needs to be refreshed, rejuvenated really, to once again form effective kinds of cages for the power which really now flowing around society in between each of us. And so if people are conceiving of big social media or data companies as the people where a lot of power now sits, but there are also presumably more maverick kind of decentralised homes of power, people in their bedrooms wielding an enormous amount of power through their technical ability. Are we likely to see a situation where kind of bedroom activists, for want of a better way of putting it, um, try to take on the big tech companies as a way of getting around tech companies' power? Um, I, I, we, we, we've seen this in the past, yes. So you're, you're talking about the kind of hacktivists going after Sony or kind of 4chan kind of pursuing, uh, pursuing, say, the FBI. Definitely over the last kind of, say, 20 years, we've seen time and again the kind of, and I've interviewed many of them, the kind of unbelievable power felt by people that have technical prowess and can suddenly see that they can translate that prowess into taking on organisations which are far bigger uh, wealthier and conventionally more powerful than they are. Um, but of course, the tech giants are enormously concentrated hubs of technical prowess too. And so it's proved very difficult, I think, for hacktivists or um, or kind of like malicious actors, I suppose, in, at least in the eyes of the tech giants, to actually make a dent in them in the same way that they've made a dent in, I think, more naive corporates of, uh, of say, the 90s and early noughties. But saying that, I definitely think that the hacker has, has risen to become... Um, a kind of uh, a kind of uh, the new aristocrat of the digital age. If you want to really understand the hacker, there's only one place that you you need to go, and it's Las Vegas every year. It's a DEFCON, the largest convention of hackers in the world. And you kind of go there, and you kind of you know hang out as Snackus Maximus, and 
kind of eating your kind of uh, your your Caesar salad wrap, and suddenly you see a whole new player come into town, dressed in black, shock blue mohawks, blockchain tattoos. And they sweep down the strip. And as they do so, you can see the whole bus network beginning to crash around them. The casinos start desperately wheeling in their ATM machines. They stop taking cards. This is the power of that group of people. Tens of thousands of the best hackers of the world once a year, every year in Las Vegas gather. And as they do so, they change the world around them. And something else you've been looking at recently is people in Kosovo working on the production of maybe call it junk news as much as fake news as the kind of language around these things gets more and more complicated. But I guess what they have in common is that they're able to to kind of hack the Facebook information ecosystem. Is that fair? Yeah, so it was, I, I suppose the best way of describing them um, are kind of the clickbait merchants, the kind of for-profit fake news exporters, really, who have found in places like Kosovo um, ways of... I suppose, like, sharing us the things that we click on, whether it's true or not, and in doing so, um, ways of earning uh, money far more easily and more accessibly than any other more legitimate form. Um, they're not quite the hacker, I, th- I think, in the, in, in the kind of uh, narrow or formal sense of the word. Um, they're not kind of gaining unauthorised entry into Facebook systems or anything like that. But what they are doing um, are... Uh, gaming uh, Facebook's kind of systems and policies at an industrial scale. And they're doing that, I learned when I was in Kosovo, through a network of closed groups. Um, uh, Several hundred in some, several thousand in others. Um, Facebook is a place not only where they harvest audiences, but it's also the place where these clickbait or fake news merchants actually trade with each other. They trade pages with hundreds of thousands of likes. They trade accounts that are verified to send instant articles. They discuss ways of circumventing Facebook's policies. They sell bulk content to one another. They... um, potentially sell some hacks regarding ways of increasingly monetizing the clicks that they get. Um, I mean, it really is a service sector, I think, for fake news merchants, where because they've come together and they've formed a marketplace, you you also see people that are specializing. So some people um, are kind of more focused on audience growth and other people are more focused on click monetization and so on. Um, So not quite hackers, but definitely innovators. And you've set out one of the paradoxes we've discussed quite a lot on government versus the robots, whereby power is being decentralized and centralized at the same time because networks enable people to have more power, but that power is concentrated in one place. Seems to me that either way the state loses out um, because it's either losing power to big tech or it's losing power to individuals. What, if anything, do you think states should be doing to respond to that? It's a really good question. You're right. I think that the nation state anyway as being the kind of guarantor of the sovereignty of a kind of discreet and delimited slice of geographical territory seems to be getting far, far less relevant than was in the past. And and ju- actually, just, just as a footnote, the, the, the area where I think this is most apparent and most scary is actually crime. Um, I think we're living through probably the worst crisis of law enforcement in the history of modern policing right now. Um, uh, crime on the internet, like anything on the internet, travels unbelievably easily across borders. And I've spent time with cybercrime police officers, um, some time with former cyber criminals. Um, uh, and what I heard again and again and again was that kind of investigations were foundering um, simply because police could not reach across borders to bring the evidence, the victims and the perpetrators all into one place, into a courtroom. We have to remember, of course, as well, that we've only just woken up to the actual scale of cybercrime as it's actually happening. Now, in 2016, in the kind of gold-blated 
really important survey that researchers like me pay a lot of attention to, the crime survey in Wales, they asked two new questions. One, have you been the victim of um, computer misuse? And two, have you been the victim of fraud, especially online fraud? And the numbers came back, they were staggering. The number of crimes they actually thought happened in the UK by adding those two questions doubled. In other words, as much crime was happening in the online space through, and this is not enabled, this is dependent cybercrime. So this is crime that can only happen thanks to technology. Um, as much cr- cyber dependent crime was happening as all other crime types put together. Uh, a, a kind of crime, as I've just said, that it's very, very hard for police to enforce or to, or to convict people on the basis of. And um, there's no easy way around this. There's, as, as, as online technologies allow human action, be they crime or otherwise, to flow seamlessly, it often feels, across borders, their ability to actually control what's happening in their own borders is simply going down and down. Now, what do they do about this? It's, it's likely that, that probably two things eventually will happen. I, I, I think it's inevitable that more and more kind of um, responsibilities for this that states currently hold will be pushed upwards into multilateral institutions. I know that isn't that it doesn't feel like politics is moving in that direction at the moment. I know we're seeing resurgence of national kind of uh, nationalism and populism and so on. But I think in order to actually survive, states are going to have to um, are going to have to push more of their re- resources and, and capabilities upwards in order to chase criminals, for instance, across borders. At the same time, I think states might themselves actually become less about territory. Um, so the, 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 the most interesting person in the book that I actually interview on this was a guy called Thomas Ives, who's a former president of Estonia. Um, and very much credited for actually kind of having this vision that Estonia was going to become the first kind of postmodern digital country at the end of the Cold War. Um, and he kind of was in discussion around actually what the future of the nation state was with me, kind of musing on the idea that maybe states will become something more like kind of service sector organisations. You know, you have a series of states each competing with each other to kind of provide a service to citizens that, thanks to the internet, can actually more easily than ever kind of pick and choose between them. And and Estonia, in a a weird way, has already done this. They've dissolved their government into the X road, which uh, is a kind of decentralised... Uh, kind of back technical backbone, which means many say that Estonia will continue to operate even if they're completely invaded. Um, and also they've opened up, say, e-citizenship, cheekily for, uh, for um, Brexit-wary British uh, business people. Um, so you don't have to be present in Estonia in order to register a company there. So I think those two things are probably going to happen in equal measure, really. We're going to see more multilateralism and also states might actually dissolve and change exactly what they are um, in order to kind of just reflect the way in which people are behaving now and, 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 where, and why geography and physical location matter far less than it did. And one last question. It's a, probably a dangerous question for a podcast which focuses on how technology will influence politics in the future. Um, are we straying in any sense in kind of contemporary political conversations into making mistakes around technological determinism at the moment? Yeah, I, I, so you, you, see, you see these kind of two, two like wildly different schools of thought on this. You've got some people that are saying tech's just an instrument, it's all about the people, and you've got others saying that tech is in fact the driver, the agent itself. Um, to be honest, I'm actually... I don't quite know which one's right. I think the obvious cop-out is that there's some combination of the two. Um, I'm mainly fascinated by people. Um, and as it perhaps is hopefully a little clear through the different stories I've given just now in this interview, um, what I really 
have tried to do in the book and try to do now, whether they're Kosovan clickbait merchants or darknet um, assassination market proprietors or whatever, is actually to go out and talk to the people that are using technology to change all, change all of our lives. Um, people are at the beginning and end of all of this. And, and I don't quite think that tech is an instrument. I think technology definitely shapes all of us. It shapes our identities and relationships that we cherish and the problems we see in the world and the ways we go out and try and solve those problems. For sure, tech is an, an, an important agent to societal change um, itself. But I think for me, and maybe this is just because they make better stories, it's the people that matter. Carl, thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks. Of course, power isn't just something that exists in politics. It exists in all sorts of relationships. And in many circumstances, the uneven balance of power between men and women makes it difficult for women to leave abusive relationships. One of the questions I've often asked on Government versus the Robots is to try and find some of the practical applications of technology that can help make society a better place and the world a better place for people to live in. Somebody who's actually risen to the task of doing that is Hira Hussein, who founded the platform Chain. I'll let her explain what it's all about. I do lots of things. One of my hats is I help governments be less corrupt and more efficient by publishing, collecting and publishing more data on their public procurement. Uh, and I also run a small charity, which is called Chen, and it empowers women who are experiencing domestic abuse and other forms of gender-based violence by collecting uh, and producing resources that help them. Things like, how do I get divorced? How do I apply for child custody? You know, How can I stay safe online? These kind of questions that are no-brainers that you think you should be able to Google, but in fact, you can't. So that's what we do. And how long has Chain been running? It has been going for five years, yes. So very exciting. And when did you first have the idea? I have been stewing on something to do with women's rights for a very long time, but uh, I helped two people very close to me um, get out of abusive marriages. And it was that then that we were looking for online resources and we just couldn't find them that it made me think, you know what, there should be something like Chen. And are you a technical or, 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 or are you a techie? Are you a tech person? Yes, I am a semi-developer, which means I can do front-end things. Uh, but I've been working in tech since uh, before, like since I came to university in Glasgow. Uh, I grew up in Pakistan, so that's why I intonate Glasgow. Um, but yes, I am a techie. I identify as that. And were you involved in developing the site in the first place? Almost everything you see on Chen has been made by me at least the first iterations. And now as our team has grown, we are 400 volunteers from 15 countries. Uh, more and more people and more capable people than me are, are helping uh, make the sites better. And what are some of the projects that Jane runs? So our main focus is producing resources, things like how do I, um, you know, how do I build a case of for domestic abuse without a lawyer? That's one of our guides. We have guides on spotting manipulation. So that's our main work. But in the last year or so, we've realized that the charities are getting less and less funding, which means we need to come up with digital services. So two of our more exciting projects this year have been about uh, one. We have a, a chatbot on our website, which is actually a cat. So it's a catbot. Uh, which helps women find resources on our website because we have multiple languages and people can have different identities. So it makes it easier for them to search. And the other is we're building a micro course platform and that project has been funded by Comic Relief. So it's very exciting. We're making, we're completely designing it with women who are in abusive relationships in mind. And what will be behind the course or what will be the content of the course? 
They will be all of Chen's resources, and we're specifically focusing on soft skills like you know how to deal with stress, how do you um, you know develop more self confidence, how do you sleep better, how do you manage your finances better, um, and then all of the other great stuff that we have on Chen already around uh, legal and mental health um, and just you know. Um, those sort of things that you think that that people because women take a long time to to decide to leave a relationship it's, it's going to be very complex so it's to help them make that decision and you mentioned that when you when somebody googles things like how to get a divorce or thinking about the practicalities of leaving a relationship there's not much there and we know that women's services are generally poorly funded here in the uk i don't know what the situation is across the rest of the world but do you ever feel that you're kind of plugging a gap that you wish that government or other public services was filling it's a great question because i think we we work across the world in the uk specifically the you know Props to GDS for doing a really good job in making the law very clear and also the process of applying for divorce and child custody very clear. Where it's less clear is around benefits and like finances because the two things that stop women from leaving are where am I going to go and what am I going to, you know, how am I going to sustain myself? So these two things, I do think we are plugging a gap and I wish we could do a better job of it, but it's simply not possible with a volunteer network. You know, 30, with 30% of... Uh, uh, funding cuts to women's shelters. You can imagine that how many women and children are being turned away. That is something I wish the state would step up and do because that's simply not possible for anybody else to provide. And how is, you've got a chat bot or, or a cat bot as you call it on the website. How's that working out for you? Is it is We've not talked about bots on government versus the robots before, but I wonder whether it's added value to the way in which people use the website. It was an experiment, and we think it's been going really well because we it's not for everyone, and we know it. So we designed with that in mind. It's a cat, so people know it's not a human. The worst thing you want to do is to appear to be a human and give someone that false hope that that, that bot will understand what they're saying. It doesn't even have that much conversation. It's just for those people who have too much um, anxiety or like mental cloud or fuzziness. You know, sometimes when you're going through a very tough time, you have that to help them select and produce like a list of interesting articles or resources that they need. Uh, the interaction that we've had so far with it, I think it's been active this year and we've had 250 uh, people use it, which for us is really good because we we just thought we didn't, had no idea how people would use it. And we have uh, had really good feedbacks from AI experts, which is really fun because it was made by students. So it's a very, very basic chatbot um, that doesn't chat. So it's been going really well. And have you chain work in the UK, in Pakistan, in India and Italy, I think, is that right? Those are our chapter sites, but actually we're global. So we, I usually say we reach across a dozen countries. Um, our top three audiences actually are the UK, US and Canada, which is surprising because we've never focused on the three. <laughs> and those are the biggest sources of our web traffic. And do you find that people in different countries engage with the services on offer differently? Yeah, so most of the direct uh, pleas for help, um, requests for direct support come from Pakistan and India and UAE. And uh, the interactions with chatbot, I think, have been uh, more, I would say, in in the West. So that's how I would say that. Uh, there are lots of differences. So most women um, in the UK who contact us are those who are from marginalized communities. So they're coming, they're getting in touch because they don't feel safe uh, or they don't feel like no one will understand their situation if they contact the police. So there's a definite mistrust of police and authorities. And this the same in the US.
And you're doing some some fantastic work. Chain's grown really quickly in a short space of time. If you could be doing even more, what would you be doing? I would figure out a way to crack two things. One is to figure out a way of generating income that doesn't has zero cost to our users so that we are never reliant on funding. I think that's sort of model that needs to exist and I would love to take a crack at that. And the second thing would be is housing. If we can fix housing, we would it's a game changer because of how many women that I even just personally reach out and we just cannot help because there are no beds available and people don't want to host people and it's just it's the biggest problem that stops women from leaving. And you're committed to encouraging women to use technology for empowerment. Where would you send women who wanted to understand more about potential uses of technology to make a difference in society? If you want to start a project like Jen, I would think I would say that you look at what's already out there. There's so much innovation across the world and just you know expand your horizons outside the UK. There are great examples of innovation uh, coming from Latin America, from Middle East, from Asia, so from Africa. So go and see what people are doing and, and think about how you can adapt that to your own community and be focused. Be open to failure, learn. You know, I am a great believer in trying to, at least in the beginning, try to do everything yourself, just simply so that you know what the problems are inside out, and then you build a team. Hera, thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. So that's it for Government versus the Robots this week. We'll be back in the studio next week talking to Martin Moore of King's College London about his book, Democracy Hacked. As ever, if you've enjoyed the show, please do follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. Most importantly, if you like the show, please subscribe and do tell your friends all about it. My thanks as ever to Sky Redmond for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. And we look forward to talking to you again next time. <laughs>